Hello everybody, this is Dan Trotter, Pretty Good Bible Studies. I am going to cover in this audio 2 Corinthians chapter 1 verses 1 through 11. I've just finished the whole book of 1 Corinthians in which Paul took the Corinthian church to task for various errors including division, factions, being carnal, stomping on each other in the assembly with spiritual the abuse of tongues and prophecy, not disciplining disciplining a brother for sleeping with a stepmother for causing weaker brothers to stumble in the matters of eating idle meat, taking each other to court. I'm just talking off the top of my head. I hope there was something I didn't leave out because the First Corinthian church screwed up. Oh, I did leave out something. When they did the communion, they abused the poor brothers by stuffing themselves with food before the poor brothers got there, and they actually got drunk. They were feasting so much. So you name it, they screwed up. But all the way through that book, Paul called them brothers. He said he was proud of them at one point, and he hasn't given up on them. And now he writes 2 Corinthians. Now let me give you a little bit of introduction to the book before we start. The author, of course, is Paul. We know that from 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by God's will, and Timothy, our brother to God's church at Corinth. So the book says it was written by Paul and also as in 2 Corinthians 10.1, Paul says, Now I, Paul, make a personal appeal to you by the gentleness and graciousness of Christ. So Paul mentions himself twice in the letter, so we know that's who wrote it. The NIV Study Bible also adds the style argument. The book is quote-unquote stamped with his style. It contains more autobiographical material than any of his other writings, so we know something about Paul's life through this book, especially when he starts defending themselves from the super apostles who oppose him. And he talks about all of his troubles that he had. What is the date of the book? A.D. 55 is a reasonable estimate. In just a minute, I'm going to give you a chronology of Paul's relations with the Corinthians. And we will see that 2 Corinthians fits in that chronology best at A.D. 55. This was the same year as 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians was written from Ephesus before Pentecost of that year. 2 Corinthians was written from Macedonia before the onset of winter. So the letters were written very closely together. Let's read the end of 1 Corinthians 16, 1 Corinthians 16, 5 through 8. I will come to you, Paul's saying, I, Paul, will come to you, Corinthians, after I pass through Macedonia. For I will be traveling through Macedonia, and perhaps I'll remain with you or even spend the winter, so that you may send me on my way wherever I go. I don't want to see you now just in passing, for I hope to spend some time with you, the Lord allows, but I will stay in Ephesus until Pentecost. So Paul's writing this letter from Ephesus, and we're going to see later... Instead of going straight over to Corinth, he's going to go uh, north up the western coast of Asia Minor to Troas. He's going to cross over the Hellespont into Europe to the the Thracian coast and down on into Macedonia. He's going to go to Philippi. And somewhere in Macedonia, we don't, it doesn't say exactly. I'm, I'm assuming Philippi may be wrongly, but somewhere in Macedonia, he's going to receive Titus back from Corinth because he had sent Titus from Ephesus earlier. So that's roughly his chronology, and he's planning on coming on down to see the Corinthians and stay there before he heads back to Jerusalem to get there before Passover, excuse me, before Pentecost the next year. All right, as I just mentioned in that brief chronological survey and geographical survey, Paul wrote this book from Macedonia. We know that because we read in 2 Corinthians 2.13, I had no rest in my spirit because I did not find my brother Titus, meaning at Troas when he went up there, Troas is where, let me tell you where Troas is, that's in where Troy was. If you look at the map, right there at the Asian mouth of the Hellespont, which runs up the 
Propontis, the Sea of Marmara, up into the through the Bosphorus into the Black Sea. Extremely important piece of water in world history. Troas was right there on the Asian side of the Hellespont, right there in the northwestern corner of Asia Minor, the Anatolian province. Paul, instead of taking a trip straight over the Aegean Sea to Corinth, he went north and, and took a land route, a circuitous land route, up through Troas, over to into Thrace, to, and then down on into Macedonia, into Philippi, and then on down into Corinth. But on that trip, on that circuitous land route, when he was in Macedonia somewhere, and I'm assuming it's Philippi, maybe I'm wrong, but somewhere in Macedonia, he wrote the letter to the Corinthians. We read in 2 Corinthians 7, 5, in fact, when we came into Macedonia, we had no rest. Instead, we were troubled in every way, conflicts on the outside, fears on the inside. He was worried about the Corinthian church, which he had just blasted in 1 Corinthians, and he was worried that they hadn't repented yet, and so he's waiting for Titus to come back and tell him whether whether the Corinthians had decided to fly right, and he's waiting for Titus in Macedonia somewhere. And so it is speculated very reasonably that that's where Paul wrote the letter of 2 Corinthians from. It doesn't explicitly say that he wrote the letter in Macedonia, but we can inf we can imply it. We can infer it. Who were the recipients of the letter? We'll notice in, in the first two verses, Paul says, to God's church at Corinth with all the saints who were throughout Achaia. Achaia is Greece, the Roman province, which is Greece, which they called Achaia. And so it was more than just the Corinthians. It was other churches around that Paul was writing to. The NIV Study Bible says that the letter would be copied and sent to the churches in Achaia. Now, what was the purpose of Paul's writing this letter? Well, he needed to defend his apostolic integrity. There were false teachers in Corinth who were saying bad things about Paul. For example, they were saying that Paul's word could not be trusted because he had changed his plans to visit Corinth. He had decided to stay in Corinth for a good while before he went back to Jerusalem, before that next Pentecost in Jerusalem. There was a reason he probably changed his plans because he didn't want to go back to Corinth before he knew that they had shaped up because it would be nothing but confrontation and strife, and he didn't want it. And so when he didn't show up, the false apostle said, see there, he doesn't care about you. He might have started the church, but he's abandoned you. And the other thing that the Paul's enemies were saying in Corinth was that Paul was stealing money from col the collection for the poor Jerusalem saints. Apparently, as we see from Paul's spirited defense of how he collected that money, as we'll see, we get into the book. Now, this is interesting that a man as great as Paul would have people say such nasty things about him. And I'll tell you one thing. I used to say in church work, I, I had this naive view that it was all for one and one for all. We're the three Christian musketeers or the four Christian musketeers out there to slay the dragon, slay the devil. And you get out there and you start doing it, and it makes you want to be a Buddhist. The stupidity, the strife, the evil slanders that Christian workers say about each other, all in the name of protecting the integrity and the purity of the church, which of course is a valid goal, but not when you start saying things without evidence. And it's like the devil just loves to get in there and put false doubts about fellow workers and so forth into people's heads, and it's terrible. I, I used to say, man, I thought politics was bad. I got out of politics. I didn't want to mess with politics. I wanted to do the church because I was sick of all the strife in politics. I should have stayed in politics. I mean, the nasty things that politicians say about each other pale compared to what people say about workers in the church. And Paul experienced that, unfortunately. Now, let me give you a suggested timeline for Paul's relations with the Corinthians. I'm going to call this the four letters and the three visits of between Paul and the Corinthians. The, t the timeline, I think, the dates are pretty good here. A lot of times these dates are kind of iffy, but the dates here are pretty solid from what I can tell. 
I'm using a chronology suggested by a brother named Paul Barnett, whose chronology I got off the internet. Visit 1, this is in Acts 18, 1-8. This is when Paul came through on the second journey and established the Corinthian church. He stayed there for one for one and a half years or so, between 50 and 52. And then after that visit to Corinth, he... And remember, Ephesus is where he wrote the letter to the Corinthians. So here's, but before he did, wrote the letter to the first Corinthians. In that period there, while he's in Ephesus, he wrote letter one to the Corinthians. He calls that the previous letter, the quote-unquote previous letter that he wrote. He mentions that in 1 Corinthians 5, 9. Now, we don't know what was in that previous letter because it was lost. Well, then Paul gets feedback from members of Chloe's house, from Stephanus, Fortunus, and Achaicus, who might have been from Chloe's house, I don't know, but they were brothers in Corinth. So he, and he, in a, so he gets a letter back from the Corinthians, and he gets a personal report. So, in, and, I, and I assume that's in response to his previous letter that he sent the Corinthians. So he gets these, this feedback from Corinth, and he, based on that, he writes 1 Corinthians, which is letter 2 to the Corinthians. He wrote that in early 55. This was near the end of his stay at Ephesus. In early 55, he wrote 1 Corinthians. Having sent that letter, he says, well, maybe I better go see him. That was a pretty rough letter I sent him. So, Visit 2 to the Corinthians, the painful visit, which is called that in 2 Corinthians 2.1. He said sometime after he wrote 1 Corinthians, which was in early 55, sometime after that, he gave he made his painful visit to Corinth. That's visit 2. Then he wrote letter 3, which has been lost. It's the so-called tearful letter. It's mentioned in 2 Corinthians 2, 7, and 10. So he's written 1 Corinthians, which was unpleasant. He had a painful visit. Then he wrote a tearful letter. His relationship with the Corinthians was pretty rough. After the tearful letter was sent, he sent letter 4. That is our present book of 2 Corinthians, which was late 55. We're still in the year 55. And it was sent from Macedonia as Paul received good news from Titus that the Corinthians had finally gotten their act together. So after he sent letter 4 to the Corinthians, he then all hopped on down from Macedonia into Corinth somewhere the next year, 56 or 57 or so, and this is described in Acts 20, verses 2 through 3. This is the three-month stay in Corinth right at the end of Paul's missionary journey before Paul takes off to get back to Jerusalem before the next before Pentecost. So there's your outline. That can get a little bit hairy sometimes, but it's sort of necessary to really know what's going on between these letters, First and Second Corinthians. So let's get started here. Yeah, let me read verses 1 and 2 to you. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by God's will, and Timothy, our brother, to God's church at Corinth with all the saints who are throughout Achaia, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, now Paul mentions, first of all, that he's an apostle of Christ Jesus by God's will. That's, he's firing a shot across the bow of these super apostles who have opposed him and his authority. He said, hey, it was God's will that I'm an apostle. He mentions Timothy, our brother, which means that Timothy was back in Ephesus with him. Now, he had sent Timothy with Erastus to Macedonia earlier for some reason, and Timothy had gotten back. We know from that Timothy helped Paul there in, in the work around Ephesus. The fact that Timothy was with Paul in Macedonia there when Paul wrote the letter of 2 Corinthians does not mean that Timothy helped write the letter. It just means that Timothy was with Paul at that time. 
We go now to 2 Corinthians 1, verses 3 through 4. Praise the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort. He comforts us in all our affliction so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any kind of, of affliction through the comfort we ourselves receive from God. Now Paul starts this letter out with mentions of his sufferings and mentions of the Corinthian sufferings. And the interesting thing about this is that we don't know exactly what he's talking about. Now, he's going to talk a lot about sufferings, but he's also going to talk about mercy and comfort, too. We need to balance that out when we talk about this section of Scripture here. Because Paul says that the Father, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, is the Father of mercies. Not just one mercy, but one mercy after another mercy after another mercy. He constantly shows us unmerited favor, unmerited grace, mercy that we don't deserve. I think back on my life, I could be dead a thousand times. I mean, literally dead. If not dead in the grave, dead, literally like that, but also dead either financially, relationship-wise, family-wise, vocationally. I mean, you name it. God shows us mercy after mercy after mercy because we're his children, and fathers do not let go of his children. You ask him for bread, he will not give you a stone. He will never leave you and never forsake you, as he says in Deuteronomy and also in Hebrews. He's the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort. And because we live in such a veil of tears, it's a veritable war zone, this planet is, where we're living, we're going to need to be comforted because bad things are going to happen. We are going to suffer. Are you listening, Kenneth Copeland, in your multi-million dollar mansion? We're all going to suffer. Now, just briefly speculating on why Paul mentioned this suffering at the present time, he had just been through a traumatic time, traumatic time at Ephesus, and some people speculate that maybe that's what he's referring to. I'll mention that in a minute. Also, the Corinthians had been living under present distress, quote-unquote present distress, in 1 Corinthians 7.26, where Paul says, hey, because of the present distress, it's better that you not get married. So they were undergoing some stress and strain here. Now, when Paul says that God comforts us in all our affliction, that could be the editorial first-person plural. God comforts me in all my affliction. It could be, or he could just be saying, "Our." Oh, you know, people do that. Sort of like the royal we, except it's the editorial we, but it really is the first-person singular, not first-person plural. But at any rate, I don't think so in this case. I think he's talking about Paul. God comforts Paul, and God comforts the Corinthians. He comforts us all in our affliction. He's identifying himself with the sufferings of the Corinthians. Why do they suffer? So that they may be able to comfort those who are in any kind of affliction. So we need to remember this. When we are afflicted, when we suffer, we pray to God. He gives us mercy. And then that makes us all the more willing to pray for other people and their suffering. And I'll tell you, I defy anybody to deny that sentiment. It's absolutely true. When you go through something, it is much easier to pray for somebody else who's going through the same thing. You see somebody in financial difficulty, you've been there, you'll pray for them. You've been sick and been delivered, you'll pray for somebody that's sick, and so forth. We go now to 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 5. Paul continues, For as the sufferings of Christ overflow to us, so through Christ our comfort also overflows. Now what does Paul mean here, the sufferings of Christ overflow to us? Gill and Jameson Foster and Brown suggest it could mean that Jesus' own sufferings overflow to us. He suffers, and somehow that suffering gets imputed to us. I really don't know what that means. It makes no sense to me. It makes more sense to take it the way that Adam Clark takes it and affirms it, and that John Gill and Jameson Fawcett and Brown mention is this way. For as the sufferings of Christ 
overflow to us means the sufferings of Christ and his members, the body of Christ. That's how the sufferings of Christ overflow to us, because when the head suffers, the body suffers. That's a theme through Paul, especially in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, 13 and 14. When the head suffers, the body suffers. Remember when Jesus said, Paul, Paul, why are you persecuting me? Paul wasn't persecuting Jesus. He was persecuting Christians. But Jesus identified with those Christians. He was the head, they were the body, and both were suffering. All right, so when Jesus is persecuted, those sufferings overflow to us So we're, when we're persecuted. However, when we suffer these things, it is through Christ that our comfort overflows. That means we have a lot of sufferings, we have a lot of comfort. The comfort always rises to match the level of sufferings. This is supernatural. This is something that's beyond explanation, beyond understanding how Jesus comforts people in the most incredible evils. I, 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 I read these testimonies of people who go through these horrendous things, Christians, and I think I could not go through that. I could not do it. Well, that's because I'm looking at it from the outside. If I went through it, and then God's extra comfort would have to kick in to get me through it. And I've, I've listened to the testimonies. I pray to God it doesn't happen to me, some of the sufferings that people go through. But, and, and this brings up another point. When we're talking to Christians about sufferings, we better mention the comfort that goes with it. I have heard too many people say, oh, we have to suffer in Christ. We have to suffer in Christ. And pretty soon you think that, well, my gosh, I think I'd, I'd rather be a Buddhist. I don't want to be a Christian if all I ever do is suffer. If you talk about sufferings, mention the comfort that comes along with it. So the comfort flows to us. And of course, once we are comforted, as Paul said in the previous verse, we are then able to comfort those others who are in affliction. He continues with that idea in verse 6. If we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. We are suffering for you, Corinthians. Or Paul, I, Paul, am suffering for you, Corinthians. If we are comforted, if Paul is comforted, it is for your comfort, Corinthians, which is experienced in your endurance of the same sufferings that we suffer. Again, Paul identifies himself with the sufferings. Now, I assume that the affliction that the afflictions that Paul is referring to here are those which he received in getting the gospel to the Corinthians. You recall in Acts chapter 18, he was dragged before magistrate and people screaming and hollering at him and and all that kind of thing. You know, he has constant persecution in getting the gospel to the Corinthians, and he's reminding them of that. Say, hey guys, I suffered for you, I care for you, and that gives me authority to speak ahead of these so-called super apostles that are dividing your church up. I am Apollos, I am of Cephas. These big shots who want to come in and build upon another man's foundation, i.e. my foundation. We go now to 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 7. Paul continues, And our hope for you is firm, because we know that as you share in the sufferings, so you will share in the comfort. There you see, Paul mentions both, sufferings and comfort. And he says this is a confident expectation because that's what the word hope means. Hope means a confident expectation of the future which you cannot see. It's similar to faith. Faith is believing in something you can't see in general, which includes things that might have already happened. But hope means the future, and you believe it even though you can't see it. Paul knows that God takes care of his children. There's so many times when I talk to a lot of young, I've been talking to a lot of young Christians from China just gotten saved and they're going through life. They've just gotten married, for example, and they're having kids and they're, and they're starting out their life journey and they're worried about finances. They're worried about they're not getting along with their parents and all the stuff that life is composed of. And I say, I'm not worried about you. I'm not worried about you getting the coronavirus. I'm not worried about you being bankrupt, your husband not being able to find a job. I'm not worried about you because God never forsakes his children. You might suffer a little bit, 
but God is going to comfort you right afterwards. We go to 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 8. For we, again, this is Paul talking, for we don't want you to be unaware, brothers, he's using the editorial we, for we don't want you to be unaware, brothers, of our affliction that took place in Asia. We were completely overwhelmed beyond our strength so that we even despaired of life. Now we see that the suffering that Paul's talking about is not a minor irritation. It's something that made him wonder whether he was going to live or die. The affliction that he talks about took place in Asia. Now, the whole province of Anatolia, present-day Turkey, is sometimes referred to Asia, sometimes it's referred to as Asia Minor, and sometimes the little province there that Ephesus was a part of, the little section on the western coast of Turkey is referred to as Asia Minor because that was a Roman province. So sometimes it's a region, sometimes it's a political subdivision, and it can be confusion, confusing. So just remember, Asia Minor can include the whole province, which includes Cappadocia in the east and Galatia in the center and Caria and Lycia on the southwest coast. You can include the whole thing, or sometimes it's just a province. So we don't know ex exactly where Paul is talking about that he suffered this affliction. The NIV Study Bible says the place and the nature of the affliction is unknown, and we probably should leave it right there and not worry about it. However, I want to mention some other options that John Gill mentions. Gill says that Paul could be mentioning all the troubles he had in three years on the third journey. So you could just go back and look at the troubles he had on the third journey and say, well, that's what he's talking about. He could be in more particularly meaning the trouble he had on the third journey in Ephesus right at the time, what is it, 53 through 55, right at the time before he wrote this letter. He was in Ephesus for three years, two and a half to three years, and he had some trouble there. Well, John Gill says, yeah, but the trouble he had was just a one-day deal. That was when the silversmith started complaining because Paul's anti-idolatrous preaching had hurt his business. People weren't buying silver idols for Diana of the Ephesians anymore, Artemis of the Ephesians, and so he started a riot, and they wanted to get Paul run out of town, killed, put in jail, whatever. That was a one-day affair, and Paul got out of it. So Gil says that's really not enough to say that Paul despaired of life. And I think Gil's probably right about that. He mentions the Jews lying in wait to kill him, and that's in Acts 20, verse 3, which is at the end of the third journey, which is after the letter was written. So I don't know how in the world that could apply to the this at the wrong time. So I, I, either I misunderstood Gil or there's something wrong there. So that's not it. Gil says it could be the stoning at Lystra on the first journey. You recall he was stoned and left for dead. And Adam Clark says that's the only thing that happened to Paul that can match how bad 2 Corinthians 1.8 sounds. I despaired even of life. After that stoning, he probably despaired of his life. And, of course, then we would have to take Asia's referring to the whole province of Asia Minor because Lystra was over there in Galatia in the middle center of the, of the landmass of Anatolia. And Adam Clark figures up, ends up saying that, well, maybe this affliction that Paul experienced was something not recorded in the Scriptures, which I tend to think it is. At any rate, we don't know. As the NIV Study Bible says, it doesn't really matter. The point is, is Paul went through hell in his ministry, life-threatening situations. And it was beyond his strength. He was completely overwhelmed, and he despaired of life. But that's humanly speaking. He didn't despair in God, as Jameson Fawcett and Brown points out. We read in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 8, We are pressured in every way, but not crushed. We are perplexed, but not in despair. So we rely on God, and our human despair will not destroy us. It might overwhelm us. It might think we're dead. We might think, well, it's beyond our strength, and every Christian goes through this where you say, I'm a dead man. I've had it. It's over. <laughs> I had a Christian, actually, a good friend of mine, actually call me up and tell me that. It's finished. It's over. And I started talking to him about Job, and he snorted and said, Job? Job ain't got nothing on me. I'll never forget that. 
When I heard that, I said, man, this brother is in bad shape. But he's going on with the Lord. That was about 40 years ago. He's going on with the Lord great now, winning people to Christ. <laughs> so, so I want to tell you something. Who says that Christianity is for wusses or wimps? Who says? It's just for sissies. It's just a woman's religion. Well, you know, it's interesting. In China, there are too many women, not enough men in the church, 70 to 80% women. And I asked the Chinese sisters over there, why do you think this is? Well, because women love, they're, they're more emotional and they have more, they love easier than men. Men are just interested in their money. Well, they're looking at their Chinese compadres and they are interested in money, but so are the women. In fact, you scratch a Chinese woman, that's what drives the average non-Christian Chinese woman. It's money and security. So I don't think that's the answer. I don't know why it happened. But the women, you know, the tenderness of God, often the love of God does attract women. But there's a lot of stuff in here that shows that it takes a man to be a, a, a Christian. And look at Paul, what he went through. Look at what he went through. Christianity is not for sissies. Now, why would Paul want to let the Corinthians know all about his affliction? Because the false apostles were accusing him of lightness and inconstancy. He had, Paul had allegedly failed to keep his promise to come see them. I'm coming to see you. Oh, now he's not coming. That's because he was disgusted with them, and he didn't want to have an uproar, so he takes the land route the long way around to get down to Corinth, hoping that the Corinthians would come to their senses before he got there, which they did. So that was the real reason, but he was being criticized. And Paul is saying, hey, you want to criticize me? Man, I suffered affliction, and my afflictions were for the Corinthians. I would, Corinthian church, whatever those afflictions were, the Corinthian church wouldn't even be there if I hadn't gotten down there, underwent the affliction that I went, described in Acts 18, and established that church. The Corinthians wouldn't even be there. And those apostles are accusing me of being inconstant, of being unfaithful to, to the Corinthians. Please. 2 Corinthians 1, 9 through 11, and we'll finish up this audio. Indeed, Paul continues, we personally, and that's I, personally, had a death sentence within ourselves so that we would not trust in ourselves but in God who raises the dead. Now, I love that verse, so I'm going to stop right there. He had a death sentence within himself. That means it's probably not a death sentence passed by a court. He was talking about inside himself. He, 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 he had judged himself as good as dead. And the reason that he needed to get to that spot was so that he had no choice but to trust in God who raises the dead because he was a dead man. And I was telling you what, when you get in that situation, it is so bad, and you see God get you out of that situation, it's like you have experienced a resurrection. You say, how could God do this? It was impossible. I was finished. I remember there was a brother that we were helping in my little house church, and I mean, everything went wrong. He was he was making about 70 grand a year and had a great job, and he was a, a, a blue-collar worker, but he was skilled like crazy, a machinist, and he could do anything. And he got shot in the eye with a laser I think some guy did it to him on purpose. He got fired from his job, and then he started having heart attacks. I mean, his life went to the cesspool real quick. So we were putting him up at our house for a while, and he was in our church. So, you know, I was concerned about it. And I went to talk to that brother one day, and I said, look, you know, I knew he was worried about dying. I said, if if you die, we're going to take care of your wife. And the reason he came up because he was talking about dying. He was sitting there on the edge of that porch, and he started crying. And I'm thinking to myself, this man is hopeless. There is no way that God is going to get him out of this mess. I'm thinking this, you know. I mean, in my head, I knew that God's not going to leave his children. I just told you that. I believe that, but by golly, emotionally, I looked. I said, I despaired of this man's life. Well, that was, what, 30 years ago, 20, I don't know, long time. I hadn't seen him in decades. I came back from China. I got in contact with him, and it turns out his heart is perfectly okay. 
He had got a, found a new job down there on the coast of South Carolina. He loves his job. He's making money, getting ready. He moved from down there, buying another house. He's, in other words, he's living a normal life after I thought he was dead meat. I'm telling you, you see this stuff over and over again, and you see God deliver Christians, and you realize that, man, God is the God of all comfort. Verse 10, Paul continues, He, God, has delivered us from such a terrible death, and he will deliver us. We have put our hope in him. Hope means confident expectation of the future. We have put our hope in him that he will deliver us again while you join in helping us in your prayers. Now, I'm going to read that verse in the King James to point out something. In the King James... And I think the Holman Christian Study Bible uh, masked this a little bit, although I think you can justify the King James translation. The King James translation has deliverance in the past, deliverance in the present, and deliverance in the future. Let me read it. 1 Corinthians 1.10, KJV. Who, God, delivered us from so great a death, that's deliverance in the past, and doth deliver, that's present, he does deliver us now in the present, in whom we trust that he will yet deliver us in the future. Past, present, and future deliverance. Deliverance at all times, put your trust in God. Now, how do we justify that? Because the NIV and the Holman Christian Study Bible don't quite have it that way. They have past, he has delivered, and he will deliver us several times in the future. doesn't mention the present. Well, this is the way Jameson Fawcett and Brown puts it. The oldest manuscripts read, will deliver, namely as regards immediately imminent dangers. So, doth deliver means he does deliver us in the immediate future. And so there's your present in the King James, but it's translated as will deliver. But it means will deliver in the immediately imminent future in the Holman Christian Study Bible. JFB, Jameson Fawcett Brown continues, in whom we trust that he will also yet deliver us. That's the future. And that refers to the continuance of God's delivering help hereafter. So, if you look at the subtleties of the Greek, I guess, which I'm not equipped to do, Jameson Fawcett and Brown says the King James is exactly right. Deliverance in the past, present, and the future. Notice that Paul says that the, the, the future deliverances are going to come when the Corinthians pray for him. While you join, join in helping us by your prayers, even the great apostle Paul needed the humble Corinthians to pray for him. These same Corinthians who had screwed up their church life so royally that they have become a byword for Christian screw-ups for 2,000 years, and yet Paul depended upon their prayers. Think about that. Paul says at the end of verse 11, Then many will give thanks on our behalf for the gift that came to us through the prayers of many. The gift would mean, would mean the gift of the answered prayers. And, and once Paul testifies about that, many will give thanks for, the, for Paul receiving those answered prayers. Those answered prayers that came to us through the prayers of many, through the prayers of many Corinthians. Folks, pray for one another and don't stop. I was talking to a good friend of mine who said he's in a ministry that's doing a lot of good stuff. It's an old established ministry. And he says, people don't believe in prayer around here. Now, of course, he, he prays in tongues, and that's a lot easier to pray in tongues. When you run out of English, you can keep praying, and a lot of the people he's working with don't. And so it, it's harder for him, but that's still no excuse. Pray all the time and don't stop praying. I have another friend who went on a mission trip to Thailand. He gets over there and the place is full of demonic activity, Buddhist-type stuff. And they have to go through these horrible mountain roads with equipment that about jeeps that broke your backs as the axles bounced over the ruddy roads. You know, your typical missionary story. And he says they never prayed hardly at all. He said, man, if I'm getting ready to go out into the midst of a demon-infested jungle, 
I would like to pray. And he couldn't get people to pray with him. They were going through the motions. It's amazing to me how people don't pray in the modern church. And if you're one of these people who are doing that, I will say this with all the sincere humility that I can muster. You're an idiot. You need to pray, not only for yourself, but for each other. And you need to have people praying for you. Ladies and gentlemen, with those pleasant words, we have now finished 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 1 through 11. We will continue with starting with verse 12 in 2 Corinthians 1 in our next audio in which we discuss Paul's continuing defense of his apostleship. He's going to defend himself against the super apostles charge that Paul was neglecting the Corinthians by not coming to them like he had originally planned and he put off his trip and he's going to explain why he put off the trip. We'll do that in the next audio. Hope you enjoyed this one. 